You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Welcome to Redemption Church. We're a Jesus-centered community pursuing grace, sorry, pursuing redemption and connection through grace, sharing, and exploration. Really glad you're here. If you're new to Redemption, welcome. Um, There's a card in the front of your seats. It says radically inclusive. You pull it up, it says hope. If you want to fill that out, drop it in the box on your way out. We would love to reach out, get to know you, invite you to ask any questions that you have. You can also go to redemptionhou.com slash today and click the I'm new button. Um, if you're not new, you can also go to redemptionhou.com slash today and see announcements and see today's scripture and such. So um, how are we doing this morning? Oh, good. Y'all are better than me. That's I expected a very... Okay, so we've got someone who's honest up in the front. Thank you. Um, can I just confess that it's, it's been a brutal couple of days and weeks and maybe years? Um, I, I really struggled this week with feeling like um, I wasn't really fit to be your pastor. Not because of some sort of moral failing. I wasn't like doing anything unseemly. But just I feel like there are so many things that tie me down and so, so much that I don't bring to the table. And I just felt very much confronted with my limitations, both as like a human being in general, but also my limitations as like me as a person. And as I've heard from a number of you in the last several days and even some this morning, one of the things that I've heard over and over and over again is something similar. That a lot of us are carrying into this room this morning this sense of failure or shame or brokenness or suffering or grief or anger or maybe numbness. Can I just say, welcome to the human experience? that I think sometimes churches can dress things up in a, in the, in a type of way um, and pretend like that is not normal. That if you really loved Jesus, or worse yet, if Jesus really loved you, then you would be happy and everything would be good and nothing would ever be broken and everything would be fine and it's just victory in Jesus every single minute of every single day. And yet that's not the case. That's not who we are as a church. That's not who I am as a pastor. Um, And if that's not good enough, then fine. You can fire me and maybe I'll be relieved. (laughs) Um, But I say all of that to say yesterday, uh, 
I was in a particularly crappy mood. Um, I was angry, I was frustrated, and I think a lot of that is coming from just a sense of grief. It's some just stuff going on in my world and in my life and a sense of not being enough. I'm an Enneagram 3, and so welcome to my own personal torture chamber. If you are into Enneagrams. And uh, we do, our hub groups meet on Saturdays, and I was railing to my wife, and railing is probably an appropriate word, about how like every single day is just filled with stuff and I just don't have any space and time and this is just stupid and what am I even doing and blah, 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 blah. And in my head, like I heard myself saying these things and in my soul I knew, but yeah, you should probably go. Not because there's like an obligation to go, but because this is probably the thing your soul needs even though it's not the thing your soul wants right now. And so I went and I showed up and I was um, probably visibly broken as I walked into the room. And my hub group is great, not because I'm in it, but because my group is great. And they, those who are in it are laughing the hardest at that because they're like, yeah. Um, but they just received me as I am. Not because I'm their pastor, but because I'm another human being that they are friends with and that they delight in and that they choose to love and commit themselves to. And I found in that, in my weakness and my limitation and my brokenness, that just showing up was all I could muster and yet, that was enough. And I know that, that for a number of you this morning, just showing up here this morning was like a pretty daunting prospect. But it's enough. Like, whatever is going to happen over these next few minutes, um, whatever is going to happen when you leave this place, like, one of the invitations that we have from this text today is to show up and let God be God and us be human beings. And so let's talk about this text today. That, that old chestnut of Naaman that you all are so familiar with, um, right? This is the part of the Bible that if you've been reading through the Old Testament with us, um, usually we get to like Numbers and Leviticus, and if you're doing like, I'm gonna read the Bible in a year, you like drop off somewhere in there. And then if you keep going, you get to like the life of David and then Solomon, and this is all very interesting. We know these people, this sounds familiar. And then this like, in the, the minds of biblical literacy, there's like this big black box after Solomon. And this is the time of Israel's kings. This is the time of Israel's prophets. And there's this lineage of prophets and kings. And I won't go into the whole thing because it really doesn't ultimately matter. It's not gonna change your souls to know this information. But just to give you a little bit of the framework of what's going on in the bigger picture of what we're reading this morning is there's this lineage of kings and this lineage of prophets. And there's a civil war that happens right after Solomon. Um, and the civil war is the, the northern tribes of Israel, there's 10 tribes that kind of band together and they attack the southern tribes of Israel. And it's basically, a, if you've seen the Sopranos or the Godfather, it is, it's like a territory war. And this king is whacking that king. And then there's like deals being done under the table and we're making deals with Egypt and they're coming in and it's, it's, it's beautiful. Like, I feel like, uh, what's the dude's name that makes all the super violent movies? Quentin Tarantino, like he needs to get a hold of it. He needs to read Kings because there's like, there's a mini series in here that could rival Game of Thrones. And again, I'm, I'm confirming that I shouldn't be y'all's pastor. The fact that I know these things and I'm now equating the Bible to like gang wars. Um, so anyway, so in the context of this, basically what happens is the Northern part of Israel is never good. 
Like they, the, the, it's always represented by their king who's meant to represent God to the people. It's this whole image of God thing that we get back in Genesis that like severely breaks. The, the king is meant to image God to the people who are then meant to image God to the rest of the world, the rest of the nations, the rest of the peoples. So Israel, like the northern part, the northern tribes, they never get it right. The first thing that their king does is like, man, going down to Jerusalem, which is down in Judah, the southern part that they're attacking, that's really inconvenient. I know, we'll build shrines and altars and idols here and we'll worship here um, in these places. And they never recover from that. They just keep doing that over and over and over again. The southern tribes, Judah, it's like a fits and starts. A couple of them get it right, a couple of them get it wrong. But most of what happens in Kings is dealing with these northern kings and the prophets who go and be like, guys, get your act together. Don't you understand who God is inviting you to be? And so in this, what we get is this story of Naaman. Uh, so... <clears throat> This story actually begins back in 1 Kings, uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 1, where you get this weird like, okay, that's interesting information, but who cares? Um, There's one of the kings of Israel, he falls down off of a roof and hurts his back, but then he's about to go to war. He's like, I don't know my back. And so he's like, I don't know what to do. And so he goes and he's going to seek out um, the advice. Now, the language the Old Testament uses here is the language that you would use of going to, to seek the Lord and trying to figure out what does the God of Israel say about the situation. But instead, he, using that same language, it, it takes it and packages it up and makes this shocking statement. He goes to see Beelzebub, right? Now, if you've read Lord of the Flies, then you know that means the Lord of the Flies, which means nothing other than it is not the God of Israel. And so, Beelzebub is now responsible for this king's like future. And then this weird character pops up named Elisha. Now, Elijah, the way that they introduce Elijah to this king is they say, this is the Lord of the hairs because he's covered in like cloaks of hair. And so you have this like storyline that is the Lord of the flies versus the Lord of the hairs. And none of that matters except for this. Beelzebub becomes emblematic of all of the kings and Israel's missteps. It is their seeking from other gods what ought to be sought from their God, Yahweh. And Elisha, the Lord of the hares, becomes emblematic of Yahweh's faithful and inconvenient presence among them regardless of their willingness to come to him. So Elijah is this tangible, physical reminder, hey, God's here and he's committed himself to you and he's not going anywhere. And so the prophets, Elijah being one of these, are going to call Israel to do what? Does anyone know any Bible nerds out there? Out yourselves now. What did the prophets tell Israel to do? No one. Man, we need to start Sunday school, okay? Repent. Repent, y'all knew it. You just didn't want to say it. You didn't want to out yourself, you Bible nerds. <coughs> Repent. And this is like, we talked about this a little bit last week. This is the, the word that we now somehow package and use as Repent, you filthy heathens, like stop behaving in these bad ways and start behaving in these good ways, which is not actually what the word means at all. And we'll get into that in just a second. So Elisha insists and reminds that there is only one God worthy of worship because there is only one God who holds the power over all things, including life and death. 
And so it's in this context that we get the story of Naaman. Now, Naaman is like the general of Aram. Now, you don't need a huge history or geography lesson here on the second Iron Age. Here's what you need to know. Aram ain't Israel. And if you aren't each other's country and you aren't in like a treaty with one another, then you're fighting each other. And so like two chapters before this, Israel and Aram had been at war with one another. And now here's this weird story of this general of Aram who has this skin disease, but is otherwise incredibly successful. Now here's the problem with the skin disease. It is going to keep him from doing all of the things that would otherwise make him successful. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. And so you get this, like, it's, we could do this for hours. I won't, don't worry. It's an amazing story because essentially what God does, because all through Kings, God is working behind the scenes and is faithfully showing up and taking care of things even in spite of people going against it. And so God shows up through this enslaved girl. So these, uh, these bands of raiders had gone out and they had raided Israel and they had taken this girl captive and they had put her as a slave in this house. And so there's this girl who would have been the lowest of the low in this patriarchal society who is enslaved, so she's not even the right like people group, who is telling the general, hey, you should go to Israel and see the prophet. And he listens. Right, there's some subversive stuff going on in this story that if we read it closely, um, we can see and not miss. And I, I want to point out how God does this over and over and over and over and over and over again. How God shows up in the weak places, in the limited places, in the impoverished places, in the unexpected places, and does his work. And so the king of Aram, or sorry, the the general of Aram then goes, Naaman, then goes to the king of Israel, right? You're going to go and you're going to get healed. So where do you go? You go to the the seat of power. And uh, the king of Israel's response is hilarious because he he thinks that this is some sort of excuse to, well, you can't heal me, so we're going to now go and raid your city and kill you. Um, So he freaks out and he has this response, am I God? Am I God? Do I have... And he says this, do I have power over life and death? Right, and it's one of those moments where this evil character in the story actually says something that is true and at the heart of things. And it's not that he's not God because he's so evil. It's that he's not God because he's not God. Whereas the servant girl points to the source and says, no, no, go see the prophet who is God's man, who is the representative of God in Israel. And so Naaman then goes and sees uh, Elijah and he gets healed. And in his healing, he says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So you have this non-Israelite who's looking for healing, who's looking for peace, who's looking for flourishing, who comes into Israel by word of his servants and this servant girl, not by powerful people, doesn't find what he's looking for in the seats of power, and instead goes out to this wild, hair-covered prophet and finds healing and rest. And his response is, and now I know who God is, and I will only worship him. Now contrast that story with the story of Israel, who has God with them at all moments and, and at all times, and is instead refusing to point themselves towards him, and is looking outward for their life. Sorry, I'm going to take a sip. Here we go. 
I sound worse. That's great. (laughs) And I wonder, in this story, what we're being invited into. Because really, this is a story, uh, it's an anti-idolatry story. Now, idolatry is like this really fancy word that people have used to beat people over the head with, you know, you shouldn't watch football, that's idolatry. We have thousands of people in a stadium screaming. I wish you screamed like that on Sunday morning for the Lord. Like, okay, hold on. Like, can we, can we talk about what idolatry is? Man, my representation of Facebook is spot on, by the way. That was, that was perfect. Idolatry is the belief that our peace and our healing and our flourishing comes from somewhere other than God. Idolatry is the belief that our peace and our healing and our flourishing comes from somewhere other than God. Our peace and our healing and our flourishing comes from somewhere other than God. Can I confess to you that so much of my angst this week about being an inadequate pastor doesn't come from my ability or inability to point you to God, but comes from my inability to be God for you? Can I confess that to you? That one of the real traps of this job is I get to be Jesus, and I have the type of personality that can feed on that. Oh, I love to be needed. I love to be wanted. Again, Enneagram 3, hello. And when I run into my own limitations and I realize, oh yeah, I'm not God and I'm not Jesus and I cannot fix your awful situation and I cannot heal your brokenness and oh my God, you know what? I can't even fix my own suffering. I can't even fix my own soul. When I run into that, it makes me realize that I run into the trap of idolatry just like we all do. Maybe it's, right, I don't know what itch you need scratched. I don't know what your suffering is. I don't know what your pain is. But I do know that there is an answer for it, and it's not a tried answer, and it's not an easy answer, but that answer is Jesus. And that everything else we chase after and we give ourselves over to that's not that may temporarily feed us and give us something, but it is ultimately going to destroy us. Maybe not in this grandiose way. But one of the things that happens in this story is you see this non-Israelite doing what Israel ought to have done to pursue their healing. And so what I want to invite us to do as a church, as I'm inviting myself to do this as your pastor, is to orient myself towards the life-giving, resurrecting Jesus. Because we can trick ourselves into thinking that our peace and our healing and our flourishing comes from spirituality. If I just did these spiritual practices, then I'll have healing, then I'll have peace. Or maybe we can trick ourselves into thinking it's companionship. If I, if I wasn't single or if I just had more friends or if my spouse was different or if I just had kids or if I just had another kid or if my kids would just graduate and move out of my house, like, right, whatever it is. Or maybe we think that we can find healing and wholeness in church. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we can be like Jesus for one another, but we cannot be Jesus for each other. God is found among us and through us, but we are not him. And to confuse that has caused all sorts of problems um, in the world. When we elevate egos and pastors, and by the way, we love kids here, like actually and really, and I know that that is the most awkward for the parent because I've literally been here (laughs) and done that. Um, But yeah, so you're never disrupting us when your kids are here just being themselves, okay? But our redemption is found in the God of Israel most clearly defined and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know that we struggle with that. Like, this is not a, hey, you better get right. Um, This is the invitation that I am fighting for because I feel like my soul needs it, that I'm inviting you to fight for alongside me and with me. And so this story sheds light on orientation. So Naaman in this story is gonna, is gonna get up and he's gonna go move towards Elijah throughout the story. And the way that the Hebrew describes this is actually really poetic. I'll spare you the, the details. But he uses this language of standing in the face of Elijah and he's getting closer and closer and closer to the face of Elijah because Elijah uh, represents the face of God in the story. Elijah is not the face of God, but he represents the face of God. Now, Elisha has this like crony prophet guy who like hangs out with him, who's like one of his prophet people. And the story flips. So Elijah says, go in peace, right? Go in shalom, go in wholeness, go in, we would say it this way, go in salvation. And so his like crony prophet guy chases the guy down. And so he's moving away from the presence of God towards this Naaman guy. And what he seeks from him is money and power. And he basically swindles him out of the money and the power and he comes back and he ends up, at the end of the story, he ends up with the leprosy that Naaman was freed from. And so it's this reversal where the people of Israel who have God are running away from God and then then finding themselves um, on the outside. And these outsiders are running to God and finding themselves with peace. And so it's all, uh, it's like a big parable about idolatry, about orientation, about repentance. Idolatry at its heart is the fear that God is not enough. Or maybe, and this is my own personal stuff, maybe that God doesn't actually really love you. You're not worth loving, Brandon, unless you dot, dot, dot. Or maybe that God won't come through, or maybe that God is not good, and so I should turn to these other things that perhaps are. And so we look to mechanisms and practices that we think will give us life. We're looking for wholeness and flourishing. And ultimately, we're just trying to find some sort of rehumanization. Something that makes us feel alive again. Makes us whole. But what happens in this is that idols offer us a world where we don't need the kingdom of God, where we don't need the people of God, and where we don't need God. Idols are uh, a technology that is gonna give us all the answers without God. And so when the prophets of the Old Testament are calling Israel to repent, what they are inviting them into is a reorientation. 
This is not about morality. They're not telling them, hey, stop doing bad things and start doing good things. They're saying, hey, stop giving your life to this over here. Turn around and start giving your life to this over here. And so I want to ask us the question, and as, as most non-judgmentally as I can, because this is very much my own question for myself, what is at your center? What are you giving your life to? What do you wake up and spend all of your time and energy and Right, and there's like practical things that we all have to do and we ought to be doing those, but as we're doing those things, what do we think is gonna happen for us in that? What is your orientation? We so desperately, um, right, and this is why I started the way that I did this morning. We so desperately wanna put ourselves at the center of our lives and our stories, and right, I totally get this because like that's the only way you can see the world is from yourself. But what happens is when I put myself at the center of my life and of this church and of my story, I very quickly take on the role of God in ways that are like really unhelpful for my soul and really unhelpful for your soul. And it leaves us lonely and anxious and fearful and disappointed and bitter and in one shape or form we become versions of ourselves that we maybe don't even end up liking very much. And isn't this exactly what Jesus warns us of? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. And I don't think that's a story about martyrdom. I think that's a story about humanity. This is what it means to live a Jesus-centered life. You are not in the middle. So none of this, none of what we're doing here this morning, our worship, our confession, our praying, our communion, none of this can sustain the weight if we put ourselves in the middle of it. And I think part of the conversation needs to be why we think we need Jesus in the first place, right? So we don't show up here on Sunday morning because if we check this box, then we get to go to heaven when we die. And if, if that's what you prior believed when you walked in, we're really glad you're here. And I want to invite you into something that's actually way bigger and way more beautiful than that. And don't worry, yes, you get to go to heaven when you die. So I'm not saying you don't, but I'm saying that is not the point of the story. That is not the point of Jesus. Jesus is inviting you into life here and now. He's, a, he's inviting you to experience fullness and wholeness and healing here and now. He's inviting you to experience the kingdom of God, not in the future, but here and now. And we cannot experience that. We cannot taste that if we are in the middle of the story. And so what do we do? We repent. <laughs> we reorient ourselves. We put God in the center. We put Jesus in the center of our lives. And that is weird, y'all. It's weird. And what Jesus does is as we do that, and the reason Jesus wants us to do it is because in doing that, the fullness of our humanity is restored. We find peace. We find healing. We find restoration. We find resurrection. 
because only one thing can actually bear the weight at being at the center. And it's Jesus. And so the invitation this morning is to enthrone Jesus at the center of our lives and our hearts and our affection. Okay, practically, how do we do that? Congratulations, you've done it. So, so, so much of some of the conversations that I've had are filled with some like guilt about, yeah, but I've really failed to put Jesus at the center of my life this week. Congratulations, me too. The, the, the point here is not that we have to be perfect in doing this. The point here is the reminder that as we, as human beings who are weak and frail and limited, as we go through the messy, normal busyness of back to school and switching jobs and all this stuff, Jesus is there the entire time, whether we're aware of it or not. And our experience of that moment can be colored by whether, Je- whether we're aware of the presence of Jesus in that moment or not. Our disposition towards our tantrumy two-year-old can be greatly changed if in that moment we are aware of the presence of Jesus or if we are not. The way we understand our suffering can be greatly changed by our awareness of Jesus who suffers with us being in that And so how do you do that? How do you put Jesus, how do you reorient yourselves? You show up. You show up. You walk in Sunday after Sunday, and you say, I need a little reorienting. Can, can the church help me? Can we together as human beings who are living through the human experience, can we all together witness to the resurrected Jesus together? Can we all yearn for and long for and hope towards the one who makes us whole? In our weakness and in our brokenness and in our sinfulness and in our imperfection, can we do that together? And I think we can. And I think what it does for us is it changes us because it week in and week out reminds us, hey, you don't have to be God. You don't have to be God this week. You can get to that next week. (laughs) You don't have to be God because Jesus already is. And his invitation is just to come and just be. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.